Uh, chapter 8 is where we are going to be uh, today, and let me get us started uh, by reading all uh, 22 verses of 1 Samuel 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, I would invite you to use one of the chairback Bibles. It should be nearby you. It's always good to have a copy of God's Word in front of you as we study it together, and you'll find our text tonight on page 230. And as I said earlier in the announcement time, it's very much a pivotal and a vital chapter, not just only in this book of 1 Samuel, but in all of redemptive history, what we're going to look at however briefly together tonight. So let's begin as we hear once again from God's Word. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing also to you. Now then, obey their voice only. You shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons, appoint them to his chariots, to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants, the best of your young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, there shall be a king over us, that we may be like the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. And thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let's pray once again together. Father, we do thank you that you are God who speaks to us, and that your Word has been breathed out for our correction, our reproof and rebuke, for training us in righteousness that we might be fully equipped to serve you. And we pray that the Word would do its full work within each and every heart this evening, that we might serve you faithfully. In Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. 
I spent some time over the winter break, at least from my normal teaching duties, uh, down at the seminary reading a biography. I'm one of those people that loves to learn about history, but almost exclusively I learn it through the lens of the genre of biography. And I had uh, picked up a relatively recent biography that was published on, of all people, J. Edgar Hoover, who was the longtime director of the FBI. And there are a number of things that struck me about the biography, and it's probably summarized best in the subtitle of the biography, which was just The Making of the American Century. And partly what stood out to me was how this man so singularly was involved in some of the most seminal events all throughout the 20th century in America. And it caused me to think back on my own life, the number of decades that the Lord has entrusted to me, and what have been those events that 100 years from now, should the Lord tarry, People will still talk about these seminal events, perhaps in 21st century America. In my own lifetime, which is so many of your lifetime, if we look back on just the last 23 plus years in America, there's only a few that seem like have that kind of epic-like shaping reality to them. You know, there was the events of 9-11 and 2001. No doubt, a few years ago, there's the COVID pandemic that will be talked about for generations and generations But if you think about your own life, just remove it from a national picture and a global scale, there's every single person has these seismic moments in their life where everything changes as a result of what just happened. But for many, that's something like getting married. For others, it's having children. Perhaps it's a new job that moves you from one location to another. Surely we could all talk about later on tonight how we've had these times in our life where as a result of something happening, everything changed. And of course, I tell you that because we have something happening in 1 Samuel 8 tonight, where everything changed after. After decades, generations even, where the nation of Israel functioned very much like a theocracy ruled by judges under the Lord's hand, it's here that they take those first steps to being a monarchy. And even as we'll see later on, certainly by the end of our time together tonight, it's something the Lord uses in his wife's providence to bring about a king of kings whose name is is Jesus Christ. And so simply what we want to look at along the way in our brief meditation this evening on 1 Samuel chapter 8 is Israel's request for a king. Because maybe you notice, students, as I read the passage, they don't get a king by the end of 1 Samuel 8. They don't even know the name of the king that's soon going to be appointed. This chapter is all about their request for a king and what comes in the Lord's prophesying as a result of that request. And so there's just three simple things I want us to see, and then we actually will get to a fourth along the way. I want to show you briefly from the first few verses just the context of their request before we consider its content and consequences And then we will see at the conclusion how it gets us to Jesus. But notice the request's context. Verse 1 again of of chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. And if you just glance back a few verses prior, of course, at the end of verse, I'm sorry, end of chapter 7 where we left off last week, it was a time of wonderful prosperity in Israel. That God had defeated the Philistines. Uh, We know that Samuel was going around on this circuit of annually judging, administering justice in Israel, and that the land was in this place of perpetual peace for about 40 years, it seems like. 
But that peace is almost immediately upset with just the passing of a few blank lines in our Bible from the end of chapter 7 into the beginning of chapter 8. Because now the problem is, not just that Samuel's old, but that Samuel's sons, of all people, are wicked. You see what we're told in verse 2 and 3? Their names are Joel and Abijah, which just means the first is Jehovah is my God, Yahweh is my God, and Abijah means the Lord is my, my father. And neither son clearly is living up to their name. Because verse 3 notice says again, they didn't walk in Samuel's ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And what's so striking about chapter 8 is how it so seemingly mirrors the beginning of this book where you had another man judging this priestly prophet in Israel named Eli, who had what? Wicked sons. And there was a request for a judge from Hannah who would come and, and serve under God's people. And Samuel's appointed. And you would think, of course, by the time you get to chapter 8, that if anyone was going to have righteous offspring in the land, it would be Samuel. But he has wicked sons too. And it's, it's so striking that you'll get commentators actually in this passage wonder to what degree Samuel is responsible for his wicked sons because the chapter itself doesn't seem to give any sort of sentence or declaration about what degree of responsibility Samuel had in it. And certainly we can't even adjudicate what degree of responsibility he had in it as much as we can lament the reality of a pattern perpetuating itself in Israel. Leaders come up. The next generation, utterly wicked. Leaders of righteousness rise. The next generation, utterly lost. And certainly it's a problem that plagues Israel. That the truth isn't passed on to the next generation. The next generation isn't trained in the ways of righteousness and holiness before the Lord. And so surprise, surprise, what happens? The nation begins to spiral out of control. I sat not long ago with a number of men who have served the Lord faithfully. Pastors and, and professors for many decades, much longer than I have served. And there was much lamentation that went on within that conversation. Because almost to a man, they knew of the struggle of having, having children that didn't walk in their ways. And again, there's no reason in this kind of context to adjudicate responsibility as much as we must lament that reality being so common in the church and pray that it not be so common in the church that there be faithfulness that there be holiness that the Lord answers our requests for children that walk in the ways of the Lord and certainly Joel and Abijah weren't doing that so the nation of Israel decides we need to ask for a new leader so the context is Samuel's old his sons are worthless there's no good leader in Israel therefore we get to the content of the request you'll look at what they say to Samuel in verse 5, Behold, you are old. Your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And if you know your Old Testament well enough, what you would know is that the request for a king in and of itself is not wrong. You could go back to a place in Deuteronomy chapter 17 primarily where you would find Moses prophesying, predicting, proclaiming that a time was going to come when God would give a king to his people. 
So the request for a king clearly is not wrong. But if you, you trace out what Moses is saying there in Deuteronomy chapter 17, what you will see is that this king that would come, that God said would lead over his people, was not going to be anything like the nations. Actually, the Old Testament all stipulated. He could only have so many horsemen and horses, uh, lest he rely on military strength and not on the Lord for the nation's safety. He could have so many wives, lest he be tempted into apostasy and idolatry, which, you know, even with someone like King Solomon, that became his great trap. At the same time, too, he could only have so much wealth and so many riches and resources, lest he be so exalted in elite status beyond ordinary people in Israel. If you read through those verses, what you would see is not just is that he was going to be a king totally unlike kings in the world, but that he was a king whose very existence demonstrated dependence upon Yahweh. And what's so wrong in Israel's request, the content of their ask is that latter part of verse 5. A king to judge us like all the nations. My kids, you might remember back when Israel last served underneath a monarch. It was in the nation of Egypt, under bondage and slavery. They were enslaved to a king. And what we're going to soon see in this chapter is that Samuel's going to prophesy, a king's going to come, he is actually going to enslave you. So unrighteous will he be. But you see how Samuel responds, doesn't he, with displeasure in verse 6, when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. That's always a good thing, isn't it, when you have frustration, when you're displeased. I wonder if your increasing holy impulse in the midst of such difficulty, even in the midst of such consternation, is you, you bend your knees before the Lord and take it to Him. And you'll notice that Yahweh says to, to Samuel, obey their voice, verse 7. They haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me from being king over them. Verse 8 essentially says, this is what they have been doing. Since I brought them out of the land of bondage and slavery in Egypt, they've always been about forsaking me and serving other gods. They're doing it to you, ten, You too right now, just obey their voice. Only warn them, you notice verse 9, solemnly and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So what I want to do before we move from the content to the consequences is give you even from this second section of four simple applications that we can find even in their request. And the first is this. A challenge about our reliance. What we need to see is that our reliance may be on a method more than the maker. Uh, Because the people of Israel see a problem in leadership. They look for the world's solutions and think that method is going to bring the peace and prosperity that they so desperately desire. Rather than going to the Lord and seeing what His will would want, what His word directs. We too, of course, can be just like that thinking about what works out there pragmatically in the world. Certainly that's crept into the church in many places. What works out there, it's going to work in here. And what we in fact are doing is not relying on a maker, we're relying on a method. It's not just a challenge about our reliance, it's a warning about our requests. Now students, you want to feel the reality of that. It's clear in context, it's a sinful request, and God gives it to them. Do you know that sometimes God will give you things you ought not to ask for? That God will grant you requests that you should not plead for him to give to you? Sometimes our desires are not nearly as holy 
as we think they are. Number, number three, an application here is a truth about our rationality. And by that I mean our seemingly wise plans may actually be wrong. I mean, it's altogether rational, logical, isn't it? We have bad leaders in the next generation. So give us a new leader. Give us a king. We see this working in the other nations around us. Well, this makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? But that rationality, that worldly logic, is not, of course, in submission to God's word. And the fourth simple application we can make there is a word about our resemblance. And what I mean by that is our heart may not desire holiness and resemblance to Jesus Christ. Because what's so principally wrong about the request is give us a king to judge us like all the nations. Whenever since he brought them out of bondage and slavery in Israel, you can think of a text even like Exodus chapter 19. God says, you will be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for my own possession. You are not going to be like the nations. But what do the people so earnestly desire? Conformity to the world. Likeness to the world, not resembling holiness to God. And it's true, isn't it, that so often, not only in our churches and our homes and our places of work, we can lack the resemblance to Christ, the desire for likeness to Christ that ought to mark our lives. So there's a context for the request. Samuel's old, his sons are wicked. There's the content, give us a king to judge us like the nations. And again, God has told Samuel, warn them about what's coming. You're going to grant the request, but first warn them about what's coming. You'll notice the consequences begin, verse 11 of chapter 8. Samuel says, these words of the Lord, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons, appoint them to his chariots, to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And you might have noticed, even as I was reading the passage a few minutes ago, how there's a very clear verb that the text keeps using to illustrate the preeminent consequences of this king. Just listen to him, even as verse 13 unfolds into verse 17. You see what he begins with saying? He will take your daughters. Number Verse 14. He will take the best of your fields. Verse 15. He will take the tenth of your grain. Verse 16. He will take your male servants, female servants, the best of your young men donkeys. Verse 17. He will take the tenth of your flocks. What's the problem? You have a king and all he's going to come and do is take from you. And if you actually kind of look at all of those things and how they would have worked, what he's going to take in the ancient Near Eastern context, what he's going to take from you are the most precious things. The most valuable things. He's going to come and take your life. You're going to be his servants, not my servants. You're going to be his slaves, not those who belong to me. And you're going to cry out, notice verse 18. You're going to cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. It's a solemn and striking thing to make a sinful request before the Lord and Him to grant it, and then you cry out for Him to change it, and He won't listen. He won't deliver. What's really interesting is actually how this text concludes, because it's not just context, content, and consequences. 
You see what happens in verse 19 through the end of the chapter. They refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, there shall be a king over us, that we may be like the nations. But what's added here is actually in verse 20, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, why is that interesting? Because the glory that belonged to chapter 7, only a few paragraphs before, was that God had come and done what? Fought the battle for his people against the Philistines, As best we can tell, at least 30 years have passed. And because there's been a time of peace, the people have begun to forget who their God is. A God who fights for them. Who defends them. And so what they begin to think is, no, we need someone else to fight for us and defend us. Verse 21, Samuel repeats all these things in the ears of the Lord. In verse 22, the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice. And make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. There is no identifying of the king that happens here. There is nothing more than just depart. A king is on the way. God clearly believes it's part of his necessary plan and decree to bring about a king in Israel that is against what should have been asked for. And that's where it gets us, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what they're really asking for here, isn't it true, if you understand the sweep of the Old Testament, is that they're asking for a substitute king. Um, I have an old pastor friend who's got a relatively provocative personality and he loves to quip about substitutes and how so many people in our American culture just thrive on substitutes. He'll say things like, people love substitute Coke, otherwise known as Diet Coke. People love substitute burgers, turkey burgers. Far too many people in the South, he'll say, love a substitute sport called NASCAR. He'll just wax eloquent on all these supposed substitutes that fill our lives. But if you think about substitutes, genuinely and sincerely considered, they never can bring about the promised reality for which they are substitutes. And what they want here is a substitute king. They ask for a substitute king. And what's altogether striking in the fullness of redemptive history, eventually God gives his people what? A substitute king. But he's totally unlike the nations of the world. You might remember the dialogue that Jesus had with Pilate in John chapter 18. We're only a few weeks away from seeing that in our morning service. Where they're dialoguing about this kingdom. And Jesus says... Yes, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. I am a king unlike the nations. I'm a king who fights for his people in a way the nations don't fight for their people. I'm a king who's a substitute for his people. That I will lay down my life for my beloved. That I will pay the penalty that they deserve so that they might be welcomed into the kingdom. Of course, the consequences of this king, Jesus Christ, are not consequences of taking. Isn't that the glory of the gospel? Here is a king that comes, and he doesn't take from you. Didn't we meditate this morning on the glory of his invitation? Here's a king who comes and invites us to take from him. Because he's a king who gives and gives and gives of the most precious eternal things that we could ever possibly receive. It's a content. And a request that brings forth a king. 
That begins this domino fall in redemptive history that will soon get us to none other than King David, won't it? Pointing us forward to the true son of David, a substitute king who's going to arrive and bring life to his people. What we need most. Let's ask for that even this very night. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that our Lord Jesus Christ is indeed a king who gives to us out of his eternal bounty of grace and mercy, of steadfast love and forgiveness, we have received everything we need in him. We thank you that he's our substitute and pray even this week that our submission before him would grow, that our holiness in him would increase that we might indeed be the people that you have called us to be, a chosen race and a royal priesthood, a people for your own possession. In Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.